Quanta Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. The World Wide Web, power grids, and the interaction of proteins in a cell are all examples of complex networks. One of the oldest, most startling claims in network science suggests that most complex networks are scale-free. That means that a few of their nodes should have many more connections than others, following a mathematical formula called a power law. In other words, they're scale-free because no one scale characterizes the network. But a recent paper calls the scale-free claim into question, reigniting a thorny debate. random networks don't obey power laws. So when early proponents of the scale-free paradigm started seeing power laws in real-world networks in the late 1990s, they saw a universal organizing principle behind these diverse networks. The researchers argued that the architecture of scale-freeness could provide insight into fundamental questions like what's the chance of a virus causing an epidemic or how easily can hackers disable a network? Over the past two decades, an avalanche of papers has asserted the scale-freeness of hundreds of real-world networks. In 2002, Albert Laszlo Barabashi, a physicist turned network scientist who pioneered the scale-free networks paradigm, wrote a book for a general audience called Linked. In it, he claims that power laws are ubiquitous, that simple and far-reaching natural laws govern the structure and evolution of complex networks around us. But other researchers have questioned both the pervasiveness of scale-freeness and the extent to which the paradigm illuminates the structure of specific networks. Now, the paper posted in January reports that few real-world networks show convincing evidence of scale-freeness. In a statistical analysis of nearly 1,000 networks drawn from biology, the social sciences, technology, and other domains, researchers found that only about 4% of the networks passed the paper's strongest tests. And for 67% of the networks, the statistical tests rejected a power law as a plausible description of the network structure. Those networks include Facebook, food webs, and water distribution networks. Anna Broido and Aaron Clausett of the University of Colorado Boulder authored the study. Clausett says they used a large amount of data compared to previous studies. Most of the papers that had come before us had looked at a much smaller number of data sets, you know, five data sets or even one or two. And so the evidence for or against was really scattered across a huge number of papers and not really all that thorough. Broido and Clausette say their results undermine the universality of scale-free networks and reveal that real-world networks are structurally diverse. The authors say that means they'll likely require new ideas and mechanisms to explain. Network scientists mostly agree that the paper's analysis is statistically sound, but when it comes to interpreting its findings, the paper seems to be functioning like a Rorschach test. Both proponents and critics of the scale-free paradigm see what they already believe to be true. A lot of the discussion has played out in vigorous Twitter debates, ironically on a network with scale-free properties. Many supporters of the scale-free viewpoint came to network science by way of physics 
They argue that scale-freeness is intended as an idealized model, not something that precisely captures the behavior of real-world networks. They say many of the most important properties of scale-free networks also hold for a broader class called heavy-tailed networks. These are networks that have significantly more highly connected hubs than a random network has, but don't necessarily obey a strict power law. Many real-world networks may be heavy-tailed networks, too. Critics don't like that terms like scale-free and heavy-tailed are bandied about in the network science literature in vague and inconsistent ways. It makes the subject's central claims unfalsifiable. Here's Aaron Clausette again. And even in my work reviewing papers in the computer science community, there must be a thousand papers in which people plot the degree distribution, put a line through it, and say it's scale-free without really doing the careful statistical work. So it seemed to be that the idea, the way it was used in the community was almost metaphorical <laughs> in some sense, that it was a qualitative thing and not a precise quantitative thing. And yet it has this precise quantitative meaning. It really means precisely a power law distribution. And so the motivation for writing the paper was an attempt to take a data-driven approach to sort of clean up this question, like really say, okay, how ubiquitous is this particular pattern across all this network data that's been accumulated over the past 20 years. It would have been very difficult to do this analysis 20 years ago because we didn't have the data sets to do it. We didn't have the statistical tools to do it. Network science is a young discipline. Mathematician and network scientist Mason Porter at UCLA says much of the contentiousness surrounding the paper stems from the field's immaturity. Complex systems in general and then sort of the network science subset of it tend to be still kind of in the Wild West in general, not just about this issue, but about other issues. And I think part of where, you know, some contentiousness can come in is that it's a field that is more immature than other topics. Porter says that immaturity influences the vocabulary of scale freeness, too. Many networks do have a characteristic scale. This is true for everything, from a perfectly ordered lattice to purely random networks. For example, in a two-dimensional square lattice, every node is connected to exactly four other nodes. In this case, mathematicians say the node's degree is four. In a random network, where each pair of nodes has some constant probability of being connected to each other, Different nodes can have different degrees, but these degrees still cluster fairly close to the average. The distribution of degrees is shaped roughly like a bell curve, and nodes with a disproportionately large number of links essentially never occur. Think about the distribution of people's heights. They're mostly clustered in the 5 to 6 foot range, but no one is ever 100 feet tall. But when a team led by Barabashi examined a sample of the World Wide Web in 1998, it saw something very different. Some web pages, like Google's and Yahoo's homepages, were linked to vastly more often than others. When the researchers plotted a histogram of the node's degrees, it appeared to follow the shape of a power law. That means that the probability that a given node had degree K was proportional to 1 over K raised to a power. The team says in the case of incoming links in the World Wide Web, this power was approximately 2. In a power law distribution, there's no characteristic scale. A power law has no peak. It simply decreases for higher degrees, but relatively slowly. 
And if you zoom in on different sections of its graph, they look self-similar. As a result, while most nodes still have a low degree, hubs with an enormous number of links do appear in small quantities at every scale. This scale-free paradigm in networks emerged at a historical moment when power laws had taken on an outsized role in statistical physics. In the 1960s and 70s, they played a key part in universal laws that underlie phase transitions in a wide range of physical systems. That finding earned Kenneth Wilson the 1982 Nobel Prize in Physics. Soon after, power laws formed the core of two other paradigms that swept across the statistical physics world. Fractals, and a theory about organization in nature called self-organized criticality. By the time Barabashi was turning his attention to networks in the mid-1990s, statistical physicists were primed to see power laws everywhere. Steven Strogatz, a mathematician at Cornell University, says in physics, there's a power law religion. Just a note, Strogatz is also a member of Quanta's advisory board. Barabashi's team published its findings in Nature in 1999. A month later, Barabashi and his then-graduate student, Rika Albert, published a paper in Science that's since been cited more than 30,000 times. They wrote that power laws describe the structure not just of the World Wide Web, but also of many other networks, from the collaboration network of movie actors to the electrical power grid of the Western U.S. to the citation network of scientific papers. Barabashi later wrote in his book that most complex networks obey a power law whose exponent is usually between two and three. Albert and Barabashi argue a simple mechanism called preferential attachment explains why these power laws appear. When a new node joins a network, it's more likely to connect to a conspicuous high-degree node than an obscure low-degree node. In other words, the rich get richer and the hubs get hubbier. In a July 2000 issue of Nature, Barabashi's team wrote that scale-free networks have some key properties that distinguish them from other networks. They're simultaneously robust against failure of most of the nodes and vulnerable to targeted attacks against the hubs. The journal Nature called this last property the Achilles heel of the Internet. But in the years since, Internet experts have disputed that characterization. Barabashi's work electrified many mathematicians, physicists, and other scientists, and it was instrumental in launching the modern field of network science. It unleashed a torrent of papers asserting that one real-world network after another was scale-free, a sort of preferential attachment in which Barabashi's early papers became the hubs. UCLA's Mason Porter says there was a bandwagon effect— the excitement spilled over into the popular press with talk of universal laws of nature and cover stories in Science, New Scientist, and other magazines. From the beginning, though, the scale-free paradigm also attracted pushback. Critics point out that preferential attachment is far from the only mechanism that can give rise to power laws. They say networks with the same power law can have very different topologies— some network scientists and domain experts cast doubt on the scale-freeness of specific networks like power grids, metabolic networks, and the physical Internet. Others object to the lack of statistical rigor. 
when a power law is graphed on a log-log plot in which the x and y axes have logarithmic scales, it becomes a straight line. So to decide whether a network was scale-free, many early researchers simply eyeballed a log-log plot of the network's degrees. Petter Holme of the Tokyo Institute of Technology wrote in a blog post that they would even squint at the computer screen from an angle to get a better idea if a curve was straight or not. In response to these criticisms, some physicists studying scale freeness shifted their focus to the broader class of heavy-tailed networks. Even so, a steady stream of papers continued to assert scale freeness for a growing array of networks. And the discussion was muddied by a lack of consistency from one paper to another about what scale-free actually meant. Was a scale-free network one that obeys a power law with an exponent between 2 and 3? Or one in which this power law arises out of preferential attachment? Or was it just a network that obeys some power law or follows a power law on some scales? Or something even more impressionistic? Network scientist Mason Porter of UCLA. The lack of precision of language is a constant frustration. And I think many people are not being consistent with how they use the language. If you look at some of their papers versus other their papers or some parts of books versus other parts of books. And, and that's it's, it's very frustrating. Aaron Clausette teaches this stuff and noticed something. In doing all this outreach and this teaching, especially with interacting with young people who were just trying to get into the field of network science, one of the things that I was struck was how much confusion there was among the upcoming generation of scientists about scale-free networks. The evidence against scale-freeness was scattered across the literature, with most papers examining just a few networks at a time. Clausette was well-positioned to do something much more ambitious. His research group has spent the past few years curating a giant online compendium, the Colorado Index of Complex Networks, or ICON. It's comprised of more than 4,000 networks drawn from economics, biology, transportation, and other domains. He says ICON lets them look at the power law hypothesis. And so we wanted to treat the hypothesis as falsifiable and then assess the evidence across all domains. And since we had this big pile of data, we felt like we could at least make some kind of general statements. To test the scale-free paradigm, Clausette and Broido, who led the work, subjected nearly a thousand of the ICON networks to a series of increasingly strict statistical tests. They were designed to measure which, if any, of the definitions of scale-freeness could plausibly explain the network's degree distribution. They also compared the power law to several other candidates. Those include an exponential distribution with its relatively thin tail and a log-normal distribution with a heavier tail than an exponential distribution but a lighter tail than a power law. Broido and Clausette found that for about two-thirds of the networks, no power law fit well enough to plausibly explain the degree distribution. That doesn't mean the remaining one-third necessarily obey a power law, just that a power law was not ruled out. And each of the other candidate distributions outperformed the power law on many networks. The log normal beat the power law on 45% of the networks. Only about 4% of the networks satisfied Broido and Clausette's strongest test. It basically requires that the power law should survive their goodness-of-fit test, have an exponent between 2 and 3, and beat the other four distributions. 
For Barabashi, these findings don't undermine the idea that scale freeness underlies many or most complex networks. He says, after all, in real-world networks, a mechanism like preferential attachment won't be the only thing going on. Other processes will often nudge the network away from pure scale freeness, making the network fail Broido and Closet's tests. Barabashi says network scientists have already figured out how to correct for these other processes in dozens of networks. Marabashi compares it to a rock and a feather falling at different speeds, even though the law of gravity says they should fall at the same speed. He says if you don't know about the effect of air resistance, you'd conclude that the law of gravity is wrong. But Closet doesn't find that analogy convincing. Closet says physicists trained in statistical mechanics often use those kinds of analogies for why their models shouldn't be held to a very high standard. And it's a little bit disconcerting in some ways because you can always retreat. If you, if you have a hypothesis about how the world works and it doesn't fit your data, the question is why? Closet says if you looked at 1,000 objects falling instead of just a rock and a feather, you'd get a clear picture of how both gravity and air resistance work. But his and Broido's analysis of nearly 1,000 networks hasn't brought about similar clarity. Closet wrote on Twitter that it's reasonable to believe a fundamental phenomenon would require less customized detective work than Barabashi is calling for. Closet says it's a common assumption that all networks are scale-free. The tacit and common assumption that all networks are scale-free and it's up to us to figure out how to see them that way, that sounds like non-falsifiable Hypotheses. Closet and Steven Strogatz agree that if some of the networks rejected by the tests do involve a scale-free mechanism overlaid by other forces, then those forces must be quite strong. Strogatz puts it this way. What is it that's causing these heavy-tailed distributions? What are the different mechanisms? And what types of corrections to the simple predictions would you expect if several effects are going on at the same time? I mean, it seems like Contrary to what we see in the case of gravity on Earth or gravity in outer space, where we're seeing elliptical orbits, where the dominant effects really are dominant and the smaller effects really are small perturbations, it looks like what's going on with networks is that there isn't a single dominant effect. Alessandro Vespignani of Northeastern, another physicist-turned-network scientist, says the debate illustrates a gulf between the mindsets of physicists and statisticians. Both have valuable perspectives. But he says physicists are trying to be the artists of approximation. He says we need to find some organizing principle. Vespignani says the scale-free paradigm provides valuable intuition for how the broader class of heavy-tailed networks should behave. He says scale-free networks and heavy-tailed networks share many traits, including their combination of robustness and vulnerability. So the important question is not whether a network is scale-free, but whether it has a heavy tail. He was under the impression that the community agreed on that. But Duncan Watts, a network scientist at Microsoft Research in New York City, doesn't agree. He objected on Twitter that this point of view is really shifting the goalposts. He says the terms heavy-tailed and scale-freeness are used in several different ways in literature. 
The two terms are sometimes used interchangeably, which Watts says makes it hard to assess the various claims and evidence. Take scale freeness, for instance. It actually did mean something very clear once, and almost certainly that definition does not apply to very many things. And now it means something else, and that definition applies to lots of things, but it's not really clear what the definition is. But Watts says network scientists haven't gone back and retracted the early claims. The claim just sort of slowly, you know, morphs to conform to all the evidence while still kind of retaining its brand label, you know, surprise factor. Actually, at the end of the day, that's the part that bothers me the most because that's bad for science, right? Like, that is not what we're supposed to be doing. Closet sees his work with Broido as a call to action to network scientists. It's a call to examine a more diverse set of possible mechanisms and degree distributions than they've been doing. Closet says maybe we should consider new ideas as opposed to trying to force old ideas to fit. Michelle Yoon helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Erica Klarreich's full article, Scant Evidence of Power Laws Found in Real-World Networks, on our website, quantamagazine.org. Also, the MIT Press is publishing two quanta books, Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire and The Prime Number Conspiracy. Order them now at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or your local bookstore. (music) 